If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get started, we want to tell you a bit about the sponsor of this week's History Extra podcast, Warner Hotels. If you're looking to escape to a picturesque corner of the UK for a few days, Warner Hotels has just the thing for you. Each hotel offers everything you could possibly need for the perfect weekend away. From unrivaled leisure facilities and inspiring live entertainment to delicious dining experiences and plenty of history for you to uncover. If this sounds like your kind of getaway, Warner Hotels is now offering a series of exciting weekend packages in 2024. Each three-night stay is at one of three historic hotels, with dinner, bed and breakfast included, plus a whole itinerary of fascinating talks and Q&As with a selection of BBC history experts, such as Tracy Borman, Susanna Lipscomb and James Holland. So what are you waiting for? Book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. He had a kind of a presence, as when I met him many decades later, it was very obvious. He just had a presence which was not an arrogant presence, but a presence of somebody you did not want to kind of cross. Not because he was a a villain or a thug or anything like that, quite the opposite. He was just so strong and almost regal. And that goes back to the chiefdom. I mean, he was was in his chiefdom terms a royal, uh, and he rather saw himself that way, to be perfectly frank. That was Peter Hayne discussing Nelson Mandela. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week marks the centenary of the birth of Nelson Mandela, one of the towering figures of the 20th century. His life story is the subject of a new book by the politician and author Peter Hayne. And we sent our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, to meet Peter in London to find out more. 
I'm really pleased to be talking with Lord Peter Hayne, a Labour peer who was a Member of Parliament for 24 years, a senior minister in Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's governments, and a leading campaigner in the anti-apartheid movement. Thanks so much for joining us on the History Action It's a podcast. pleasure. Delighted. So your latest book is Mandela, His Essential Life, um, and it chronicles the life and legacy of Nelson Mandela, his struggle against apartheid, his time in captivity to his role as a leading statesman. And obviously your book is about Mandela, but it's also about your own um, experiences, knowing him and following his, his career, his own struggle against the apartheid regime. But I hoped we could just start by exploring a little bit of your own part in the international struggle against apartheid. Well, the book itself is the only concise readable story. There are lots of great biographies, Anthony Sampson's, for example, but they're long and they're learned. This doesn't pretend to be like that. It is the story that you can read quite easily and quickly. My involvement came from being the son of brave anti-apartheid activists, uh, Walter and Adeline Hayne, my parents, in Pretoria, when they were took a stand that they didn't need to. Only a tiny fraction of the white population in South Africa under apartheid actually did stand up against it, and I'm proud that they were amongst them. And their involvement at an ordinary level that we would take for granted politically here, putting out leaflets, holding meetings, standing in elections and so on, led to them being jailed without... um, uh, charge for two weeks. One of my earliest memories was being woken up in the middle of the night and being told that they were being put in jail and they disappeared for a couple of weeks and and I was 11 at the time. And then they were successively issued with banning orders. My mother was banned uh, in 1963 and that restricts you enormously. It stops you being politically active, at least openly. You can't be quoted in public. You can't meet more than one other person at a time and you can't uh, go on school premises and things like that. So their anti-apartheid activity was, in a sense, in my DNA from a very young age in Pretoria, from 10, 11 particularly, and then increasingly through my teens to the point where life became so difficult that they stopped my father working as an architect, and he was restricted by then banned himself Incidentally, they had to get special permission to talk to each other because banned people were um, prevented from communicating with another banned person. And the authorities were embarrassed about the situation that they discovered for the first time. Uh, And eventually they stopped my dad working uh, as an architect in Pretoria to which he was confined and couldn't leave, so he couldn't get work elsewhere. And we came to Britain in 1966. Um, so that gives us a bit of a background of your own experiences of apartheid. But if we could talk more generally, I suppose, about the South Africa that Mandela was born into, what were the restrictions in place? Well, apartheid was introduced from the late 1940s onwards, after the Second World War, by the Africana part of the white population. The white population in South Africa, about 10% of the overall population, was divided between English-speaking whites and Afrikaans-speaking whites. Afrikaans derive from uh, Dutch and, uh, uh, and, and Flemish languages. Uh, in from the 17th century onwards, people started settling in South Africa. The British came later. Mandela was born in 1918, so this is his centenary year. He was born into a rural life that, and was a herd boy, herding sheep in particular, 
uh, in his in his youth, and at that stage, of course, with Britain British rule having existed then for some decades, the British having taken over South Africa before granting it independence in 1910. Um, really, the basis of racism was already there. But it didn't get fully institutionalized until the late 1940s and beyond under under the system of apartheid. So he was brought up in a way that, as he said, it was almost a crime to be a black. Uh, and uh, that increasingly intensified under apartheid. But there was racism, there was segregation. Uh, and so I always think it's a mistake to say apartheid only began under the Africana minority white pop government of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Actually, it began under, Brit under British colonial rule. Um, so this is the, the South Africa that um, Mandela grew up in. Um, and you, you say in the book, you make clear in the book that a very important uh, thing to understand about Mandela is that from um, a very young age in this rural upbringing, he was groomed to be a chief in the Eastern Cape. How do you think that that informed his politicisation, his education? I don't think it informed his politicization so much as when he did become politicized, which was relatively later on, certainly not in his youth and not into his early 20s. He had been, then it became important because he had been brought up to expect to succeed his father and maybe others higher up the chain of his chiefdom, the Tembu people, uh, a clan within the Khoza people of South Africa. And so he had always expected to be a leader and had been groomed as such. So when he got involved in politics, and in particular supporting the African National Congress, which was the majority organization of black people in South Africa, and he was introduced to it by his mentor and close comrade, Walter Sisulu, who's a very important figure to understand in his life, um, he then increasingly got involved, but it wasn't an overnight conversion. It was a gradual thing. And at that point, his leadership potential started to be visible, certainly to Susulu, who saw him as a future leader from a very young age. Uh, but you cannot understand that without his chiefdom grooming uh, to, to, to fulfill that role. Mm -hmm. And as you just mentioned, Susulu is a hugely important figure in, in Mandela's life, and that comes across in your account. They both were uh, instrumental in the ANC Youth League being established, and um, from, what I, from what I understand, it it followed quite uh, Gandhian principles. Of uh, can you explain uh, um, what their aims were early on and how how they came to be established? Well, Mandela, Susulu, and others were part of a, a group of young Turks, if you like who felt increasingly frustrated at the traditional means of lobbying by the ANC leadership. We're talking now early 1950s, late 1940s, early 1950s, uh, relying on writing letters, parliamentary deputations, that kind of thing, which were getting them nowhere. Indeed, on the contrary, apartheid was, the vice and noose of apartheid was being remorselessly tightened almost month by month. Uh, and so they felt we've got to do something much more dramatic to assert um, the right of, of black people to have their, their freedom respected and, and to secure justice. And that's why they introduced, yes, Gandhian tactics of nonviolent direct action, feeling that you know, the old conventional lobbying methods were getting them nowhere. And they weren't. Objectively, they weren't. I mean, the African National Congress uh, 
had been formed around the um, the turn of the century, the, the 20th century, and it um, had pursued this constitutionalist, uh, gradualist, conventional, respectable form of lobbying for decades and decades. And then apartheid just got worse and worse. They felt they had to do something dramatic, stay-at-homes, black workers who were working in the white cities supporting white um, businesses and families were urged to stay at home in the townships that ringed these cities exclusively for backs and uh, strikes rent boycotts um, bus boycotts boycotting the buses that took them into the cities from their from their homes in the townships those kind of tactics, which then, however, provoked even greater repression by the apartheid system, which was not just a system, the worst system of racial tyranny that the world has ever seen, in my view, but also enforced by a, an increasingly ruthless and merciless police state. I think I skipped us forward a bit then, um, and it would be great to go back a little and discuss um, the Population Registration Act um, in 1950, which was perhaps the the start of the regulation and restriction proper, I suppose. Um, Although, as you mentioned, it had been going, it was going back hundreds of years. So could we talk a little bit about how that restricted and and regulated and um, how the evil regime affected the lives of black people in South Africa? The Population Registration Act is actually the key bit of grounding legislation, groundwork legislation, to the whole apartheid edifice above it, in that it divided the population into four racial groups. Whites, uh, Africans, blacks, Asians, that's to say uh, from India and Pakistan, mainly India actually, both Muslim and Hindu, and then coloreds, a specific racial group still today in South Africa, uh, which were mixed race people and call themselves coloreds. And coloured in a British context is seen as a, a term that is uh, almost patronising towards black people. But in South Africa, it's a specific racial group. And that Population Registration Act defined them and, res- and defined where they could live and a whole lot of other um, uh, rights or de- the, depro- the deprivation of rights that followed. And it had an almost Orwellian definition of whiteness you know, a white person means a person who is obviously not a white person, and so on, in a clause that I uh, extract and make prominent in the book. The, the important thing about apartheid as it grew is it, is it entered and then infiltrated every nook and cranny of life. So that, for example, park benches were segregated, buses were segregated, hospitals were segregated, schools were segregated. You could not have uh, interracial sex You could not marry on an interracial basis, even to the extent that when Mandela eventually ended up in prison on Robben Island, it was specified because there were only non-white prisoners on Robben Island, coloured Asian or um, African in the main, uh, black Africans, Uh, even that uh, Mandela was only allowed a certain specified uh, ounces of fat or meat a day whereas coloreds or Asians were allowed slightly more, like half an ounce more. So this was Nazi-like precision about the extent to which the races were treated in a discriminatory way and divided amongst themselves from the bed to the school to the hospital and right into prison, and it 
goes without saying, job reservations so that, for example, blacks could do the undercoat when decorating or painting a house but could not do the top coat. Uh, black building workers could pass a brick to a white bricklayer but could not lay the bricks even though they're quite capable of doing it themselves. A very good friend of ours who was a, a clerk for many years in Pretoria Magistrates Court, suddenly they changed the regulations and he was no longer able to be employed. That was reserved for a white man. A white man, by the way, usually, not a white woman. Um, and uh, he had to train his white successor. So... I think it's important to understand how ubiquitous this uh, apartheid system was and how Orwellian it was by definition. And as you mentioned earlier, it's these regulations, so pervasive regulations that Mandela, Sisulu um, and the ANC are working against. And while committed to non-violent policies early on, you um, pinpoint the demolition of Sophia Town. Um, Sophia Town. Sophia Town um, as the moment where Mandela realises that perhaps um, a more militant approach might be needed um, and actions which would later see Mandela branded by some as a terrorist follow. It's by the, ni- the mid-1950s when Sophia Town was demolished. Now, Sophia Town was uh, uh, a part of Johannesburg which was relatively, um, was a black area uh, in an area which the expanding city of Johannesburg had designated for whites. So the people were just cleared off it. And the ANC resisted it and had a, a, you know, we will not move, we will not be moved. Well, they were moved by sheer military and police power and, and great violence. And I think that was a turning point in the sense that he felt they'd moved from useless lobbying to effective non-violent direct action. That even was being completely repressed. And meanwhile, year by year, more legislation was coming through the white parliament to enforce apartheid in an even more systematic and oppressive fashion. And that is when he started to kind of articulate in his mind that actually they may be driven to, to violent resistance as well. Although that did not actually get executed until around 1960, when the African National Congress, his organization was banned along with others, made illegal. So then they were faced with a situation where nonviolent resistance had been crushed. Conventional lobbying was a complete waste of time. Their own organization had been banned. They were, in many cases, banned or imprisoned as individuals. And they took a decision with Mandela in the lead to go underground and to to form um, an underground uh, organization, paramilitary organization, Kumtu Oisizwe, um, short for MK, the African National Congress's underground uh, um, guerrilla organization. I like it as a decision, I liken it as a decision, as a decision comparable to that of the French partisans resisting the Nazis in occupied France, where they were driven to sabotage and to, uh, to, to resistance, armed resistance against the Nazis, because they had no alternative. Mandela didn't choose that, and he very strongly distinguished, and he kind of, in, a, in an intellectual way, worked out with his comrades like Sisulu what, how, how they should take this fateful course. And they excluded terrorism, that's to say uh, the the killing or the harming of it on an indiscriminate basis of a civilian population that just happens to be on the spot at the time. 
uh, and to go for government installations, military installations, and pylons, electricity pylons, and so forth. Acknowledging, however, to himself and as a group that there was a danger that somebody walking past who had no connection with that apparatus of the apartheid state could be caught in the crossfire or actually killed. So he was very conscious of that. But I would defend the action as being there being no alternative but to total submission. You mentioned how they were forced underground and Mandela was also living underground and a really interesting part of your book was um, describing the kind of guises he assumed when he was underground. Yes. he. In those days, whites, if they had a chauffeur, were typically driven around with the white uh, car owner, uh, boss sitting in the back seat and a black chauffeur in the front wearing a, a cap and a, and a uniform typically. And that's what Mandela did. And he was able to drive all over the country with white activists who were part of the resistance and escaped detection for a long time and was known as the Black Pimpernel. Uh, he would pop up, do a meeting, give a newspaper interview, then disappear for a few months and then somewhere else in the, quite the other end of the country pop up again. And, and this was also a significant time for him because... His wife, Winnie Mandela, whom he'd married a few years before, very vivacious, uh, strong, he, th- he thought too headstrong, and uh, that was to, um, to, 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 ha- to play its part in later, later years. And her, their little daughters, he had two little daughters that he virtually never knew. So hardly had they been married, then he went underground, and she would have to be brought to him in hiding, secretly, the route changing to throw off any pursuers because she was watched. And there he would be able to see her and spend a bit of time with her on, on a kind of uh, brief basis and occasionally see his tiny little daughters. And it was from this existence that he was um, arrested and uh, put on trial. Um, and the Ravonia trial of 1963, where he gave a very famous address, which you quote in the book. What can you tell us about um, his his presence when he was on trial? Well, he was first arrested, of course, uh, and betrayed within the, from within the organisation and subsequent evidence suggested and was suspected at the time by the CIA, by the American Intelligence Service, and then put on trial on his own in Pretoria, a trial my mother attended. And when he used to go into the dock, he would turn to the gallery reserved for blacks and salute them and they'd return the salute. Uh, it was packed. She was often, my mother, the only white in the gallery, almost always, as reporting the trial for an activist newspaper. And he would turn to her and they'd raise their suits, uh, their fists in a salute to each other. Um, so he was then sent to Robben Island after being convicted uh, for that, for, the, for the, the offences associated with going underground and leaving the country, including coming to Britain. Uh, and then brought back from Robben Island for the Ravonia trial when his other comrades, Sisulu, Kathrada, Mbeki and Mlangeni and the others were arrested. And they were based at a farm um, called Lily's Leaf, which is now a beautiful museum in a suburb of Johannesburg called Ravonia, and thereby it became the Ravonia trial. And famous because they were on trial for their lives. The charges were so serious. Uh, treason and so on, 
that the automatic sentence you could have expected and they expected was to be executed, as many hundreds of activists were, uh, hung by the neck in a grisly fashion, was the norm at that stage. And what um, elevated Mandela to even greater international importance, and for that matter, domestic importance as well, uh, because by then he was the leader of the ANC, was his defiant speech from the dock um, when asked whether he had anything to say in mitigation. And he argued with his lawyers about this, who tried to persuade him not to say it. He basically said, you know, I'm proud of what I've done. I, I have stood for a society in which black people have e equal rights and in which white people have equal rights as well. Importantly, that was always the case for Mandela. Uh, and it's an ideal for which uh, I have struggled and an ideal for which I'm prepared to die. So he was effectively saying to the judge, and this is what his lawyers feared it would result in, was, you know, put the noose around my neck and execute me. Uh, and it was an amazing speech, which uh, fortunately didn't result, fortunately for him and fortunately for South Africa, did not result in his execution. Instead, life imprisoned, imprisonment in a tiny cell where his head and his feet sort of pressed against either end of, of, of the walls, um, cold and bleak in very difficult uh, and oppressive conditions for nearly 27 years, before which he was taken before the end of which he was taken off and, and put onto, into Polesmoor Prison on, on mainland Cape Town. And your book does track this um, this portion of, of Mandela's life, how how conditions evolved within Robben Island, how he and his fellow prisoners pushed um, for better conditions. So what can you tell us about, uh, about the conditions and, and the treatment that faced Mandela and his fellow political prisoners and how did that inform him for his future leadership? Well, when he arrived uh, on Robben Island, he arrived by, as, as was the only route in, by a kind of ferry boat, the island's ferry boat, and his warders were urinating down the only um, air vent, little, a little hole in the, in, in the kind of room in the base of the, of the little boat um, where they were confined, deliberately urinating down their air vent. And when they got onto the island, they were chanting at him, here you will die. So it was very clear what was going to happen to him. And the, the objective of the warders and the whole regime was to basically intimidate and beat them into submission uh, and terrorise them effectively. So they were subject to very harsh conditions, light burning during the night, uh, prevented from reading and studying very easily, certainly in the early years, prevented from getting newspapers or any outside news and had to grind stones in a, in a, in a courtyard or um, uh, uh, dig out lime from a lime quarry where, which in the harsh sunlight blinded them. And so Mandela's uh, eyesight was very damaged when he came off the island eventually. It's very, very tough indeed. And they were frequently beaten up, except for Mandela. And somehow, and this is part of who he was and who he became as the leader of his country, he had a kind of a presence, as when I met him many decades later, it was very obvious. He just had a presence which was not an arrogant presence, but a presence of somebody you did not want to kind of cross. Not because he was a 
you know, a villain or a thug or anything like that, quite the opposite. He was just so strong and almost regal. And that goes back to the chiefdom. I mean, he was, he was in his chiefdom terms a royal. Uh, and he rather saw himself that way, to be perfectly frank. Um, not in intimidating, as I say, or a kind of patronizing fashion, but that's just who he was, the way he carried himself, the way he related to people and so forth. And on one occasion when he was threatened with being beaten up, he said to the to the uh, the warder because he was a lawyer by training himself, um, and had practiced law. The, the very successful black law firm in the 1950s in Johannesburg with Oliver Tambo, his compatriot, leader of the ANC, who became the international leader in exile when Mandela was in prison. And uh, he said to this warder, "If you touch me, I will make sure." you are prosecuted in court and you will be reduced to the judge to uh, humiliated by the judge. And they never touched him. And then gradually he got beyond that resisting intimidation to spreading that sort of sense of security to his colleagues who were still badly treated by comparison with him. And then to beginning to, to think about how he could relate to his warders, understanding they were poorly educated, they were all Afrikaans, they spoke Afrikaans, so he started to learn the language fluently. Uh, and then uh, that then related to them, talked in Afrikaans to them, and they began to respect him more and relate to him as an individual. And then even deeper than that, he started to believe, in fact, he never lost this belief that there would in the end be negotiations, that his white oppressors would be forced, the apartheid rulers, to come to him and his comrades in prison and help negotiate a transition towards a, a non-racial society. So that was always his conviction, which sustained him and Sasulu and the others all the way through, but above all Mandela. And so he decided that if it was going to get to that point, if indeed what he believed and hoped would occur and did occur, that his Africana white um, uh, rulers would ultimately have to come and talk to him he decided he would learn their history because the history of the Afrikaans people is a very interesting one and quite a, a tragic one. They were themselves oppressed by the British. Remember, the first ever concentration camps were not in Nazi Germany. They were actually during the Boer Wars when the British fought the Afrikaner whites for dominance and control of the gold fields and the, and the mines and, and so on. It was about the traditional colonial objective of plundering the assets of the country. And it resulted in two bloody wars. And concentration camps, I think 25,000 Afrikaans women and children were killed and then died in miserable, horrible, insanitary conditions in those concentration camps. And that's very much part of Afrikaner folklore that this will never happen to us again. Uh, and therefore we have to have a strong state that defends our, our people, our folk in Afrikaans, and uh, uh, and we have to, you know, be very strong. And so when he started to learn their history and the history of their generals and, and, you know, their military tactics and their culture and so on, increasingly he started talking to the prison governors in these terms, not just the warders who were not very well educated, but the first time they sent the police minister to talk to him, we're talking now about um, early to mid-1980s, he started talking to me in those terms. And from that point on, every time he would talk 
in Afrikaans and talk about the, how interested he was in their history and so on. So they came to see him, not as you know the prisoner, the the terrorist ogre, but actually as a person, and as a formidable person. And then beyond that, as actually somebody that could save them from the the, the fate that South Africa was uh, was beckoning for it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, I think, that, that definitely comes across in the book is is Mandela's transformation, particularly among white South Africans um, and in the media, from feared enemy to national hero. So could you um, talk perhaps about how that transition came about? Well, he went into prison as a burly freedom fighter um, and with a touch of arrogance and uh, vanity. And he became increasingly humble but strong not humble in the sense of being downtrodden on the very op- on, on the very contrary very upright and uh, refusal to be intimidated even in in the in, in the most facing the most difficult circumstances uh, and I, I think what he then gains is wisdom and understanding and an ability to relate to the other side in a negotiation in, in the end to any conflict uh, in Northern Ireland, for example, which I helped um, negotiate a settlement for in 2007, bringing in Paisley and Martin McGuinness into power, you need to understand the interests involved. Why are people acting in this way? It's no good just seeing them, as in Mandela's case, as the oppressors, as the bad people. Why are they acting in that way? How can you reach out and understand that whilst not conceding your ground at all? And so gradually that developed and he persuaded his colleagues to go along that route. So when they came to speak to him and later speaking speaking to him on his own, which worried him a little, although he was ambivalent about it, it worried him a little because he didn't want to be seen to be isolated from his comrades and they were concerned about that. On the other hand, he had a very clear idea of a leader. A leader has to lead. A leader has to go out ahead of their followers sometimes. So I think all of that was developed uh, as, as a prisoner. Time for another quick chat about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you want to get away in 2024, why not book a weekend package at one of Warner's most historic hotels? There's Little Coat House, which is a stunning Tudor manor in Hungerford, Studley Castle, a beautiful 19th century building in Warwickshire, or Home Lacey, a huge Herefordshire mansion that was once visited by Charles I. Whichever location you choose, you'll be able to enjoy a whole weekend of live talks from your favourite historians during your stay. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. 
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You reference a, a Bill Clinton quote in your book, which says he learned to hate the apartheid cause without hating white South Africans. And for you, how much does that quote speak to the uniqueness of his character and his, his strengths as a leader? It speaks volumes, but also to his experience, where he didn't have an ounce of bitterness or vengeance in him. His motto was, um, forgive but never forget. In other words, reach out to your oppressors, but never forget that you've been impressed. Never allow yourself to be uh, to be compromised. And so when, for example, President Boerter in the mid-1980s actually tried to really get him to renounce the ANC and renounce the armed struggle uh, in exchange for his own freedom, he refused, point blank. He said, I cannot be free unless my people are free, and I will not accept some deal because I'm becoming an embarrassment to the government in prison because by this stage, his name, they had hoped in imprisoning him for life that he would disappear, never to be heard of again. In fact, the longer he was in, the more prominent his name became globally to the point in the 1980s when you see, for example, the free Nelson Mandela concert in 1988 that that, uh, was a wonderful event, beamed to 600 million people on live television across the world. He was a a global figure. Uh, And, um, you know, that that transformation occurred in in prison as well. Um, You've already mentioned here, and it seems that we can't talk about Mandela without talking about uh, Winnie Mandela as well. Um, And her legacy is a complicated and and controversial one, but what what did she represent for Mandela during his incarceration? Well, she was his indispensable... um, support but he felt and this is the the contra the kind of complex thing about mandela it's really important to understand he was this incredible leader but privately he was actually very very anguished he hated the fact it kind of tore him apart internally and wounded him inside that he couldn't be a proper father to his two young daughters who were toddlers when he went into prison and he never got to know until they were adults. Uh, His wife bringing them up in the intolerable conditions, being beaten, being stripped in prison, being banned, being uh, sent away, banished to a a remote area, away away from her friends and her home in Johannesburg in Soweto. Uh, even deprived while she was in detention of sanitary towels, things like this, it just grisly, nasty, mean and vicious and petty uh, 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 means of trying to humiliate her and and suppress her. And she survived all that. And, you know, it's tremendously to her credit that she came through all that, still strong by his side, becoming increasingly prominent uh, at the same time as being his voice on earth, if you were, because he couldn't be quoted. He's a banned person. 
he could not quote a banned person in public. So she became his kind of proxy, his surrogate. I think what that did was it went to her head a bit. He was always worried, Mandela, that she was a bit headstrong and impetuous um, rather than more kind of calculated and strategic as he was. And she was never, in a sense, a leader in the way that he was of trying to bring people together. She was a kind of leader of her own particular strand in the political firmament and spectrum, political spectrum. And I think what that experience did in the... In, in the late 60s and 70s, above all, is it brutalized her. The way she was able to survive is just by being so strong in herself and so sort of resistant to being intimidated that she became, in a way, a mirror of, of that. Um, and then, you know, we get these very tragic, sad and completely indefensible activities in Soweto in the 1980s, where she becomes a little, a bit of a queen, really, uh, and surrounded by young black admirers, some of whom she took as lovers, uh, and Mandela United Football Club, which was a bunch of thugs that killed people and did things that she didn't know about. And she was ultimately put on on trial for complicity in, in murder and convicted of it, but not sentenced to um, a long imprisonment, but a suspended one. By then, she was, in a sense, the first lady, in quotes, because he'd become president. So I think it's... I think it's a complex story to assess Winnie's and uh, in a way a microcosm of the horror of apartheid. So there are these meetings then, uh, clandestine at first and then more more public uh, as the movement grows. I know you yourself were obviously a big part of the international campaign to free Mandela. And then there's the, there's the moment, there's the moment that he, he walks free. What can you tell us about, about that moment, both from your own experiences and what it meant? Well, there were incredibly intricate negotiations that went on that gradually got more and more um, regular and in, and and uh, deeper. And in exile, the ANC was also meeting people they'd never met before across the divide. And then there was that moment that we'd all campaigned for uh, but never sort of quite believed would ever happen when he, he walked to freedom from... Victor Fasser prison in the, the, the Cape Winelands outside Cape Town. By then, he'd been moved in the final period of his imprisonment to this this uh, prison house with its own swimming pool and a white, uh, not so much warder, though he was in a prison compound, but almost like butler and uh, assistant, as it were, an inversion of apartheid where the white uh, warder is actually serving the black prisoner uh, rather than oppressing them. Uh, and there was this uh, part, to, a twist to it, where President de Klerk, who had himself served for 20 years in an apartheid government and cabinet without ever objecting to all the horror that he and his colleagues were unleashing, suddenly realised, in part having been briefed by those interlocutors of Mandela in the intelligence services and, and the police and the military and in government, that this was somebody he could do business with. De Klerk realised this was an economy going off the edge of the cliff. This was a society about to collapse into civil war with black uprisings in the townships and so on, and um, international sanctions really biting hard, including sporting sanctions. And he um, he came to talk... To, he then released him 
and released some of his comrades before him. But that moment, well, you know, it was one of those never forget moments. I mean, it was very emotional. I was watching it live on television in London, and you know, my mother um, had sort of tears streaming down her her face, and there was a lot of moist eyes amongst all of us in the family. And from that moment on. Mandela is almost the incumbent, I suppose, although it takes a, it's a little while um, to get to his leadership. When he travels, he's treated already like a, a statesman, a leading statesman. Um, what can you tell us about that moment leading up to his uh, presidency? But that's, it still wasn't solved, was there were still deep tensions and such, so much violence going on even after his release. Well, the irony is people tend to forget that um, Nelson Mandela walked out of prison then a few years later he was president. And isn't this a, a magical, almost miraculous story? And it was a bit of a miracle, really. Very few examples where such a privileged, oppressive elite gave up its power to, its, uh, to, to the oppressed in a, in a relatively seamless fashion. There was, however, more violence in between him walking out of prison and him becoming president in those four years than at any time under apartheid the previous 50 years. Why? Because de Klerk, and although he rightly received a Nobel Peace Prize along with Mandela, de Klerk and especially others in the apartheid elite in government and the state still believed they could um, hang on to power despite some accommodation to the black majority and to Mandela as their leader. And so they had this third force that was exterminating ANC people, stirring up tribal uh, chiefdom kind of tensions and rivalries, particularly between the Zulus in KwaZulu-Natal and and others, um, and trying to poison the, the whole context in the townships, for example, between older and younger uh, people and so on. It was a deliberate divide and rule policy because they thought they could still hang on to a bit of the power. And they even thought they could do so right the way to the end. I mean, they didn't expect the ANC to get the landslide victory that it did. It kind of shocked the, the, the white um, uh, nationalist uh, rulers that had released him. And uh, it was because the constitution had been negotiated, that transitional constitution, in such a way that it was a power-sharing government so President de, de, de Klerk, former President de, de Klerk, became one of Mandela's deputies. Um, so they were still clinging on to the hope that they could actually um, stay in power uh, and force Mandela to accept a kind of halfway house, which he wouldn't do. The interesting thing about Mandela, and a key to understanding him, and I bring this out in, in the book, is that he was very conciliatory, he was very... Uh, accommodating to people, but he did not bend on the fundamental principles. He's absolutely inflexible. This was going to be majority rule, full stop. It may start off with a power-sharing government, but it was going to, you could not kind of compromise on that. So he was quite a tough person to deal with because, you know, he would be full of openness and trying to understand and find solutions and think laterally and all those things you have to do as a negotiator in a conflict resolver. But you could not shift him from the fundamentals, which is this was going to be one person, one vote. This was going to be real non-racial democracy, not some kind of uh, fudge. 
And so we do see this this landslide win for the ANC on Mandela in 1994. Uh, and you were with him on the eve of his election. And you call him in the book a big picture president. So w- what was that mo- moment like seeing him come to power? And um, how did that define his presidency going forward? Well, I was with him on the eve of election just after his final press conference and uh, just found myself in a room alone with him for 10 minutes, which was an extraordinary and privileged uh, opportunity to have. And he was kind, he was very subdued in a way. It was almost, you'd be thinking, I said, aren't you excited? He said, no, I just feel there's this awful responsibility hanging on my shoulders. He knew how difficult the task ahead lay. Because remember, that a lot of whites still were in fear, I mean, absolute terror of, of him taking over. I mean, I ever, even remember one of my cousins telling me, whom I met when I was there as a parliamentary observer during the election, and I hadn't seen him for a long time, uh, and he said to me, well, they've stocked up with lots of cans of baked beans and, you know, um, meat and all that kind of thing, because they didn't know whether there was going to be chaos. Uh, and so Mandela came to power, and within a very short space of time, he'd kind of morphed from feared terrorist international saviour and uh, hero for whites as well, um, typified by the 1995 World Cup final, which is interesting in a number of respects, a rugby cup final that South Africa, at this time a genuine South African team, drawn from all races, though still it was from mostly white rugby stock, um, played against the New Zealanders, the All Blacks. And and Mandela took a decision, which I use as an example of leadership rather than followership. Leadership, uh, which he exemplified in this instance and many others, was when your closest advisors are telling you, as they did then, do not wear the Springbok cap and the Springbok jersey because it is the symbol of apartheid on the rugby field, as it was through all those decades of the struggle. It was a hard struggle. I mean, people take it for granted now. It's a really tough, hard struggle and lots of sacrifices and resistance, including in the British Parliament um, uh, and successive governments, uh, conservative governments, against uh, uh, the ANC. It was a really tough battle. And um, he decided, no, he would wear this because this was an, a moment to heal the nation. And so he went on to the rugby field. And nobody expected this. Nobody. It was completely secret. His, his closest advisors implored him not to do it. And everybody rose as a person in that stadium. And they were 99% white. And of that 99%, I would think 90% Afrikaner. All his feared opponents, all his original oppressors, uh, rose and chanted his name because of that moment that he had that insight, that uh, willingness to make that extra step to, to reach out and to heal. And it was an important, it was a year into his presidency and... You know, he still had a lot of kind of um, legitimacy to to, to uh, establish with the white minority. And he knew he had to do it. And this was an argument he had with others in the ANC and some of the more impetuous and, and radical uh, young younger element. That you, if you, unless you wanted a South Africa in which there were no whites anymore because they all fled in terror. And if you did that, the country would be in deep trouble. Because where that had happened... Um, in places like Mozambique and, and Angola, for example, where the Portuguese just pulled out. 
and mainly it was their responsibility, but there was not a properly brokered, negotiated transition. The liberation movements there were resisted to the last minute by the, by the Portuguese. And finally, when the fascist dictatorship back in Lisbon had been overthrown, it suddenly collapsed. Mandela knew that you would still need white skills, you would still need white capital, you would still need white um, people in the country because they were South Africans, Afrikaners were Africans just as much as he was, even though his people went back, you know, centuries before, uh, back to time immemorial. Uh, and I think it was that vision which was terribly important and exemplified in, in that, that World Cup final. And sport, you know, was very, very important in the transition not just at that cup final, but even during the process between Mandela's release and him becoming president, um, there was a referendum which President de Klerk called amongst the white electors to get a mandate for his process of change. And one of the, uh, the, the techniques that de Klerk and the others used in that election, in that referendum, was pictures from the Cricket World Cup final, I think in Australia, of around 1992 or so, um, in which South Africa was competing for the first time in a quarter of a century on equal terms with the rest of the world. Uh, and so it, it having become a stick to beat apartheid and defeat it, it became a carrot to bring about the transition, both in that use of those television pictures, which were very powerful and, and resonated with the electorate, that you may not be entirely happy about this, but you get your cricket and your sport back. And as I understood as a young white South African being brought up in that culture, those fanatical sports fans, you know, they make the average England football fan or Welsh rugby fan look like you know amateurs, to be honest. Uh, and the loss of their sport was absolutely critical. When I first met Mandela, he told me about the campaigns that I'd led in 1969-70 to disrupt the Swingbok rugby tour using non-violent direct action, invading the pitch and so on. And, and it resulted in the whites-only cricket tour being cancelled in 1970 and then propelling white South Africa into sporting isolation thereafter. He said this was decisive at that time when the resistance had been crushed, but also because sport was so important. So having been a stick to battle against apartheid, it became a carrot to smooth the change forward. Um, another thing that comes across uh, very clearly in your account, in your account is, is his charisma and, and his eye for mischief. Can you talk a little bit about what you experienced of that? The thing about Nelson Mandela, which set him apart from all the other world leaders that I've met, kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and celebrities in sport and politics and rock music and so on, um, is that he was a people's person, first and foremost. He always was interested in the ordinary people that he encountered. And there was one occasion when this came to the fore. I was escorting him down uh, from a higher floor in a Brighton hotel to meet Prime Minister Tony Blair on the eve of uh, his addressing, that's to say Mandela's addressing the annual conference of the Labour Party. And a Prime Minister's diary is very... <laughs> rigidly, you know, organised, you get a schedule and we had the slot and I had it, you know, battered into me that I mustn't miss the start of it. So we were heading down in the lift uh, to meet the Prime Minister and he suddenly he says, how's the family? And I said, well, my, actually my mother's in hospital with a, with a broken femur, part of her leg. She said, oh, I must speak to her. 
I must speak to her. And so I had to get her on the phone in hospital in Swansea. I didn't know the number or the ward she was in, track it all down via director of inquiries. Meanwhile, we emerge out of the, uh, out of the, the lift, the hotel lift onto the same floor as Tony Blair. And there's this line of a couple of dozen waiters and cleaners and receptionists and bar um, people and so on. Uh, waiting to see him. And he starts chatting to them and shaking them by the hand. Finally, I get my mother on the line. I say, there's a very important person to speak to, but I don't reveal who it is. He comes on the line. This is Mandela from South Africa. Do you know who I am? (laughs) So there's this self-deprecating sense of wit and humour and kind of breaking the ice. And there was another small example of that, and there are many, where um, Elizabeth and I invited him to our wedding in 2003, uh, and uh, you didn't expect him to uh, accept, which he didn't, but he sent this very nice little note and he said, I'm really sorry I can't come, but I'll be there next time. <laughs> of course, the, 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 the audience at the wedding just burst out laughing. It was so funny. It's like sort of, you know, completely unexpected. And then one final one um, that springs to mind, though there are many others I could mention, was he always referred to Her Majesty the Queen as Elizabeth. And um, during his 90th birthday, there was a party here in London and he got a message to to say, and a phone handed him to say that that, that the palace had been on the line and the Queen would like to speak to him. So he picks up the phone and he says, hello, Elizabeth, how's the Duke? Uh, And his wife, uh, by then, um, they'd been married some years, Grasha Michelle, a marvellous woman, uh, an incredible talented and impressive person in her own right, ticks him off for calling uh, Her Majesty Elizabeth. He said, you can't speak to the Queen. And he replies and he says, but she calls him, she calls me Nelson. (laughs) So, you know, fair dues, as it were. Um, uh, So, you know, he he, he would say to me if sometimes if I saw him in London when he was um, in the early 2000s, I would see him and he'd say, My wife will be along uh, shortly. She's much more important than I am. Mandela's life story is is central to that of his country um, and your country. And and why do you think it's important to have an accessible account of of his life of this nature? Well, I think in today's world, above all, not just for South Africa, where a lot of the so-called born frees, the people of whom, you know, over 40%, comprise over 40% of the population, the people born after apartheid who never knew apartheid. I think it's really important for them to know the story and to be accessible. And that's what really motivated me and found it such a privilege to be asked to write it in these terms. Um, But also for the world. I mean, Mandela's leadership, I think, stands as a symbol for good leadership in the world. There are far too many strong leaders in the world, as they strong men as they like to see themselves, uh, of an authoritarian kind. Um, who really appealed to people's base instincts. And Mandela always appealed to people's higher instincts, to the, to, to the better side of all of us. Uh, and I think his values of social justice, of uh, democracy, of in, in, integrity, I mean, there's too much corruption in South Africa and has been for the last 10 years, and he was absolutely detested it and despaired about it and warned about it in the latter part of his presidency, which ended of his own choice 
one of the very few African leaders to stand down before they their terms ended, and some, of course, have extended them over the over the generations. Uh, that that he um, he he felt it really strongly that you know in, in integrity and sticking to the rule of law. He was a lawyer, sticking to the constitution, the best constitution in the world. These values. To the point even when there was an argument during his presidency about whether an investigation into the past crimes under apartheid, which also looked at crimes committed by the ANC in exile in southern Africa against some of its own followers, um, there was an attempt from within the ANC to suppress that part of the... Mandela said, no, we've got a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that has looked into the past... The past has to be revealed in all of its facets. So I think integrity is really important, uh, and and his uncompromising commitment to to humanity. And there are lots of leaders around the world, and this is probably not the program to name them where that just isn't the case. So I think he can stand as a benchmark for what I call good, principled, decent leadership, but not soft you know, um, as it were, vacillating leadership because there's nobody stronger that I've ever studied or or met than Mandela, nobody. But there's also very few, if any, more principled and committed to those values that he held so dear of social justice, inequality and, and human rights. Well, it's a fantastic account and thank you so much for talking to us about it today. No, it's been, been great. Thank you. That was Peter Hayne. Mandela, His Essential Life, has just been published in both the UK and the US by Roman and Littlefield International. And that's about all for today, but we will be back next Monday when the topic of discussion will be Britain in the 20th century. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Before you go, one final word about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you fancy a break in 2024, you can now choose from three fantastic weekend packages at some of the most historic Warner Hotels. For instance, Littlecote House is set in a stunning location in Hungerford, which has played host to Romans, a civil war army and the planning of the D-Day landings. Meanwhile, Studley Castle in Warwickshire was used as a training camp for the Women's Land Army during the World Wars. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk.